Welcome to The Love Cleanse. I'm Lisa and we're here together to focus on living a life led by love. This looks like acting from empathy, acknowledging the still small voice within and practicing emotional intelligence. If you crave to hear truthful stories about courageous acts towards the soul's callings, then stay connected. You'll also be sure to collect insights into how to recognize and honor your feelings and needs, plus hot tips to live intentionally with kindness. As humans, we can all relate to experiencing our own versions of a crisis that shakes awake our life. The beauty is that we always get to choose if these challenges define what we believe is impossible or instead allow new possibilities. In this episode, you'll connect with Di Foster, who is a self-confessed ordinary woman with an extraordinary story. When Di was 37, she went to the hospital with trouble breathing and was told she had terminal secondary breast cancer, which had metastasized in her lungs. Di was told that 75% of her lungs were covered in tumors or had activity. One lung had collapsed completely. They said she might have 12 months to live and zero chance of surviving 18 months. Di shares that the miracle of her life is listening to her heart and this is reflected by how she trusted her instinctual inner whisper with what to do next. The intention was simple. Spend 365 days focused on gratitude, being present in life and living as naturally as she could for as long as she possibly could. She visualized what her best day looked like and thought to try to have 365 of those. Diagnologists that if you try and be happy for 365 days, you can't actually do it. But what you can do is you can choose to be present to your emotions and feelings. And in this episode, Di shares a lot on the power of intention and choice when facing adversity. She also shares her life experience with her whole vulnerable self, which I trust will leave you with new determination to live more deeply from your own heart. Years on and Di lives in radical remission. One of Di's highest values in life is growth and she has learned that her greatest hardships brought her greatest lessons. Her story cannot be defined as a tale of cancer or a talk about health and wellness. Her story is a testimony of living a life led by love which we can all relate to, learn from and find hope in. Di, you immediately captivated me with the way you speak with such honesty and vulnerability. And I had to get you on here because a key part of your story is being led by love and stories like yours remind us of what's possible in our own trials. Can you take us on your journey with you starting from the beginning? Sure. I guess the beginning of this story is I went to oncology that day not to find out if I had cancer, but the how bad version. And on that particular day, I was diagnosed with secondary terminal breast cancer, metastasized in my lungs, 
And I was given or it was suggested that I would only have 12 months to live with a 0% chance of 18 months. And I guess in that moment, just sitting there in front of this funny little oncology man, that I looked, I looked upwards and I thought, if the big guy upstairs, who I don't even know if there is a big guy upstairs, but if there is a big guy upstairs and he's looking down at me and he's trying to send me a message that I've only got 365 days, he needs to send it in a lot more stylish package than this funny little oncology man that is sitting in front of me with Roman sandals, long socks, and beige walking shorts. Because those clothes, I have no idea how those clothes lasted from the 1970s, but I was born in the 1970s, and I recognised them. And I thought, surely, if he, the big guy upstairs trying to send me a message, then he's going to do, need to do it a hell of a lot more stylish than this. And I guess that started me thinking, I thought, what is the purpose of this conversation? Maybe it's to live my best 365 days, because if I only have 365 days, then I want to make sure that I live them the best I possibly can. And in the pursuing moments, what, what came to me was through the chaos of what was going on in my head and the confusion of why this man was wearing Roman sandals and long socks and shorts, and just the absolute fear of the fact that I had literally, within the last year, met the love of my life, and I'd moved cities to be with him, and we had a beautiful life, and we were supposed to be getting married, I was thinking, what the hell is going on? And then there was this faintest of voices. And my mother would literally tell you that uh, this is the miracle. The miracle of my life is that I shut up long enough to listen to my own heart. Because my mother will tell you, and anybody else that's prepared to listen, that the only reason I get up in the morning is to hear what I have to say. So it was amazing to my mother that I shut up long enough to listen. And <laughs> in that moment, I heard a voice that was not demanding, was not yelling at me, and was very gently suggesting that I might want to listen to it. And I acknowledged that that was my own heart speaking to me. And the three things that I heard in that moment sitting in the oncology room were, be happy. Sister, if you've only got 365 days, you better make them happy ones because this is your life-defining moment, the next 365 days. Mm. The second thing I heard was go natural. And I thought, what the heck, you know, what does that even mean? And I knew what it meant. It meant stay off drugs for as long as you possibly can and do everything you possibly can to innately heal your body. And if you only have 365 days, then live them your way and you know, just, just be prepared to do that. And they offered me palliative care chemo. And the fourth thing down on the list on palliative care chemo as a side effect was death. So it's not like my decision was difficult. I'd already had chemo before because I'd had primary cancer and I'd done the traditional treatment. So it wasn't difficult for me to go, yeah, 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 nah. Nah, that's not happening. <laughs> so the third thing I heard <laughs> was be grateful. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I have no idea what I have to be grateful for. 75% of my lungs have high levels of activity in them. One of my lungs was completely collapsed. 
I sounded like Darth Vader and you could hear me literally a kilometre away. No problem at all. I, you could hear me coming because I was just, my lungs were obviously so um, unwell. And then as the days went by, I just remembered being grateful. And I just thought maybe I should just figure it out. Maybe I should just observe what I have to be grateful for. And each morning I'd wake up and I'd only open one eye and I was interested in what the big guy upstairs had to say. And, I mean, I say this tongue-in-cheek. I just, you know, I just posed a question to myself, really. And I said, am I going to die today? And this voice inside me, my own heart, said, no, now get your ass out of bed and get on with the day. And every morning I woke up and asked myself that question. Because it doesn't matter if I'm going to die tomorrow. If I've got today, then it's my job to live in that day. So what I became really grateful for was I realized that 75% of my lungs weren't working. But here's the choice. I can focus on that 75% and I can go Google cancer and I can become an expert in cancer. Or I can focus on the 25% of my lungs that are working and be profoundly grateful for that and keep my fingers crossed that it might be 26% tomorrow. And I can do everything I can today to make that 26. And then I just discovered that I had enormous things to be grateful for. And each and every day and every single moment I could, I would be grateful for anybody and everybody and anything and anything. And gratitude just became my absolute way of, of life and being and living from that place of living from a place of acknowledging that I, I am going to die because I never I never embarked on this 365-day journey to go, I'm going to, you know, F cancer because I read a lot of that sort of stuff. You know, it's like screw cancer, you know, all of this sort of stuff. And I thought my cancer is actually part of my body. And if my body created this, then I knew with all my heart that it was possible for it to uncreate it. So I decided to to water the grass because the grass grows where you water it. And so I focused on my 25% of my lungs that were healthy and I was so grateful for them. I told them every day how grateful I was that they were there because I would be really in trouble if I didn't have that 25%. And I just became so grateful for my big toe because it was working too. And I was grateful for my hands because they were working. And I was grateful for my mind that I had a choice to be aware and to make choices in each and every moment as to how I dealt with things or how, how I reframed things. And I reframed everything. I reframed my fear of death to be my leverage for life. So yes. I am going to die. Mm. There's no doubt about it. One day I will die. And I realized that death was my best, my best friend because it was my every single day reminder that I was going to die and my job was to live the very, very best life in today. And I think that you said something really, really profound in that in our own crisis, a lot of times we focus on the things that we can't change and we almost, we, we, we push against things, yeah. you know, what if, why not? But you, you instead, your mindset, you focused on what was available to you and what you and what you could change and what you could control. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, and I think that's a really um, 
it's a really interesting point because I didn't even think that I could control it. I, I would never use that word control. I would suggest that mm-hmm. I might have I might have a little bit of an ability to influence it. Um, because I think that when you're coming down to when you're unwell, fighting, control, and all of those types of words are really harsh. And you know, it's the same it's mm-hmm. the same thinking that I didn't have a goal to cure to cure myself. I had an intention. And my intention is softer and it's love and it's gratitude and it's hope and it's expansion. And, you know, so, so my intention was to live in every day that I did have the very best that I could. And in doing that, I, 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 in doing that, you get down to the essence of life, which is in just this moment. And when you break open your world in this moment, innate healing happens and and miracles of love happen and fairy dust happens and unicorns turn up and shit <laughs> happens in your life that you could never understand how it happens, but it does because you're not attached to goals, mm. setting, hard, control and all of those things that are kind of, for me, feel really limiting because if I had have had a goal, my goal would have been that I, I lasted three to five years and, and I can't dream big enough. I'm nine years down the track. I've had a child since then. I actually cured myself, or I didn't cure myself. My body experienced a radical remission. I don't have any sign of disease. Now, that could not have been my goal because I couldn't think that big. So to me, but my intention was to live every single day the best I can, and it still is until the very, very day that I die. So my intention, I love intentions because they're expensive and you can keep them no matter what goals or what what achievements you achieve because they still fit. You know, it still fits that I enter each day with love and gratitude and expansion and opportunity to grow and to make the very, very best of today. And I'm not stuck in sort of that harshness about control. So for me, you know, um, watering the grass, you know, and the, with the intention that the grass grows, doesn't mean that I'm stuck on the fact that I have to heal. It just means that I'm just going to make the most of every day that I do have. How important was it for you to allow yourself to experience the emotions that arose through your experience? That is a fantastic question because the first thing that I heard was be happy. And just in case anybody thinks that you can go out and be happy for 365 days, I tried it for you. You can't do it. And the reason I say that is because I don't think that's actually our human experience. It was incredibly important. I agree. Totally. I immersed myself in however I felt in that moment. And what I discovered was that I I, I, I just don't get stuck there. I don't get stuck in sadness or fear or I don't get stuck in any of that because fundamentally I know that this too shall pass. When I'm the happiest of the happiest, I know that this too shall pass. And when I'm feeling a little bit sad, I also know that this too shall pass. And so it's living in that fluidity and that flow that I, that I believe is the true gold. And I think that comes back to your, what I'm hearing is it comes back to your intention as well, that your, your intention is to have that happiness so that when your emotions arise, you allow yourself that space because you have that intention, that's joy, and you know that ultimately you'll, you'll 
that's your touch point and you can come back to that space and everything is welcome and and your mark is still joy. That's, and I think that is such a good way of putting it. I wouldn't have put it that way, but I love that because you're exactly right. Because, you know, when I'm sad, it's like that's okay and I move on. And when I'm happy, I don't have to, I don't have to go back into sadness and bring it with me. It's like, no, no, this is my touch point. Joy is my touch point. Yes. I love that. I believe that fundamentally we all want to be happy. That's our purpose and that's what we want. I think there's something to be said about being intentional and making it an intention. But for the listeners that are going through a challenge at the moment and they want to be happy, they want to allow them space to feel what they're feeling. How do you find that balance between giving yourself room to feel those emotions that you may not want to feel, but you know is healthy and returning happiness? How do you find that balance to live from? There's a thing called contrast and and even like the paradox of things. So it's like, I think that if I don't have great expectations in life because I think that kind of sets you up for disappointment a lot of the time, but there's certain things that I expect and I expect even, I expect to return to happiness. Not even happiness, I just expect to return to that place of clarity and calm and being okay no matter how often I get out of it. And so I don't even know that I think about it, I just have this inner expectation that when you are connected to to that life force, and, and I would never call it purpose, because I, I think that, I don't know, maybe purpose is a really interesting word. Like I, I think our purpose is to live. I, I don't I don't mm. I don't fundamentally think my purpose is to be happy. I think it's to live. And of course, happiness and joy and love are part of that. Just as when somebody close to me passes or something happens to them, I will have great grief because it's a it's a result of great love. So I don't think that mm. you know, I, I just think that both are equal. I, I don't like now I don't I don't I, I don't go and strive for happiness. I, I strive for, for life and living and that essence of the moment that you can feel. And whether that's you know, I, and I don't get stuck in any of them. And I think that that's where true happiness comes from is, you know, I, I can still be sad and in grief but still have a sense of joy about me because I'm connected to my own life force. I'm connected to, to who I am as a human being and I'm connected to the, to the world around me. Yes. So I don't think it's a one-sided coin. I, th- I don't think we should always, I, I don't think we should be striving for happiness. I think we should be striving for life and the essence of life and, and the knowledge that, you know, as I said before, death is my very best friend. I, I take death everywhere I go because it is the single best reminder that one day I will not be here. And so it brings me very clearly presently into this moment. That I do have have control or um, you know choice. I have choice. That's the word I'd use. I have choice in this moment. You know, if there's a situation in front, I get to choose what I believe it to be true about. You know, what else could this mean? There's a funny little oncology man sitting in front of me, and I'm looking at him, thinking, "Is what you're saying true? Is it always going to be true? Is it truer than true?" And on some level, I thought. I appreciate what he's saying, I understand what he's saying, but it's not my truth. He can't give me a life expectancy. This is my life, I'm connected to it, 
he's talking statistically. Statistics are based on averages. I'm not average, so I'm good to go. I'm good to go and live my life as I see is appropriate for me to live. And I think that I, I get to choose in that moment whether the thought or what's happening, whether it's true and whether it always needs to be true. And I think there's a fundamental, for me, there was a fundamental point about three weeks after this point, and that was when I sat on my sofa and I thought, I'm really afraid to die. And I faced death and I had a conversation with death. And in that process, I realized I'm not afraid to die, but I'm absolutely petrified of not living in every single day that I do have. And so what became irrelevant, the outcome to me is irrelevant. You know, the outcome of the attachment that I had to being right or wrong or the attachment I had to dying early or young is all irrelevant. It's, I mean, why just because somebody dies young is it right or wrong? I decided that my life's just my life and the only thing I'm going to judge my life on, whether it's successful or not, is the fact that I was present in the days that I do have. That I was present and I lived, truly, truly lived in the days that I do have. Now that doesn't mean that I'm manic and I go out and try and do everything. One of those days could be binge Netflix watching, if that's what it felt like the right thing to do. <laughs> Just saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's okay, we can all relate, so I'm giggling. <laughs> Secret goes back to um, ask for it, let it go, let it in. I think we're really poor on letting it go. I'm prepared to ask for things. I'm prepared to really ask for things and believe in my heart that they're true. Let them go, though. Because when you let them go, then you come back to this moment and you're present in this moment, and that's where the opportunities come. That's where the universe lines up things that you could never imagine possible, that you're like, wow, that happened because that happened because that happened. I couldn't have orchestrated that. But if I'm present, I notice it. And when we're present, we notice that little thing inside us that go, that lands with us. When someone says something and it lands and you go, oh, that's true for me. And I want to take that. I'm not sure I can do anything with it today, but I'm going to think about that and do something with that tomorrow. And you know, this is to, to this is um, life shortcut 101. If you want to know how to make your life easier, then, then tap into your intuition, tap into your gut feeling. Tap into the amen, oh, sister. It's like it doesn't need to be that. Bad. And mm. I think that we've come from a place where we've done a lot of modeling. So we go, This person's been successful at this, let's reverse engineer it. That's great. I love it. There's lots to be learned from it. But if you don't do it while you're tuning in with yourself and working out what's wrong, right with you, or right or wrong for you, for your path, for your unique path, then I think you're barking up the wrong tree. Great companies did not, are not the result, or great lives, or great inventions are not the result of doing things exactly like somebody else did them. It's about tuning in with our own selves and being prepared, being absolutely prepared to be vulnerable enough, to be real enough, to be raw enough, to go, I don't know if this is going to work out. You know, like when I took myself out of the medical system, when I wrote a letter to the doctor and said, thanks so much, but you're offering me candy and I'm looking for fruit and veg. I'll let you know if I need you. I didn't know what my outcome was going to be. I didn't know that nine years later I'd be sitting here on a Saturday morning with an amazing view talking to Lisa about my life and the, the things that are in my head. I didn't 
know that I'd be excited because my son, who's six and a half, is just about to arrive this weekend because I've been away for work. I didn't know that any of that was going to happen, but I did it anyway. And, and if I only do one thing in life and I follow my own heart, regardless of how it works out, then I can die with that. And that's what I did. I went to the day of my death and I thought, what am I going to be really pissed off about on the day that I die if I don't do it? And I thought, if I go and have chemo because I'm afraid of dying, I'm going to be really pissed with myself. If I go and do all this natural stuff and I die anyway on day 365, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to, I can live with that. I can live with, with dying in 365 days if I follow my own heart. I know that I will be able to die with ease, grace and flow if I follow my own heart. So that's what I did. I'm so fascinated how you speak about using death as a means for living. I think it's it's so beautiful because like you say, we do have a fear of it, but no one's exempt from leaving their body. And so we can use it as an opportunity to live. How can we use death as a way to know how we individually want to live? It's a great question. For me, well, <laughs> acknowledging that you're going to die, that's the first thing. Acknowledging that you're not bulletproof, and I'll just be really blunt, and if we keep treating our bodies like we are, we're going to die a hell of a lot earlier than we need to. And, you know, that's my leverage. You know, people will sit beside me and they look at the way I eat and the choices that I make and they say, I would die without chocolate, you know. And I'm like, well, maybe you're going to die with it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and, and that's not to say that I think chocolate's wrong or anything like that. I, I eat chocolate from time to time. But we have this attachment to food and to, to the way we eat and, and to think things that we know aren't good for us. And we tell ourselves every day that they're not good for us. If you're going to eat the chocolate, stop telling yourself you shouldn't be eating it. You know, like that's my, you know, I had someone the other day say to me, I shouldn't drink coffee. Really, shouldn't you? Let's examine that for the moment because the worst part about that is saying that you shouldn't do it. If you reframe it and say, actually, two cups of coffee a day is okay for me, I'll limit it to that because that's within my range, great. So it's this, this bizarre place that we live where we don't acknowledge that we're going to die and yet we live like we're actually trying to kill ourselves. It's very strange for me. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm perfect at it. But, you know, I use that, that acknowledgement and I remind myself every day that I'm going to die. I talk to my son about death. I have the conversation. I have the conversation with my son. Honey, do you realize that one day mummy and daddy aren't going to be here? And do you realize that grand and pop are getting older and granddad's getting older? And that, that we do die. And, you know, my son, you know, said to me one day, I'm really going to miss you when you die, but do I get your jewellery? Yes, honey, you do. <laughs> and it's normalising oh, that conversation <laughs> because, you know, I chose – I'm an older mother, so, you know, the reality for my son is that he's not going to have his parents for as long as, you know, he could have, but that's just the way it is. And so death – is going to be part of his life. He has an 80-year-old grandfather and two 72-year-old um, or three 72-year-old grandparents right in the early 70s. Death is going to be part of our, our life going forward, as it is with everybody. 
but we kind of figure that we just don't talk about it. So for me, talking about it, acknowledging it on a daily basis, that yes, reminding myself that one day I will not be here. And here's the thing, Lisa, dying is not the problem. Dying is not the problem because people say to me, oh, look, I've got to die of something. So I'm okay eating and drinking this and smoking this or doing whatever they want to do. It's entirely up to them. Dying is not the problem. It's living with no quality of life that is is the problem. Because as I say, you know, we are afraid of death. That's not what we should be afraid of. We should be afraid of being stuck in a body that is not functioning because we treated it poorly. That's what we should be afraid of. And, you know, as I say to people, someone said to me, how can, you, how can you drink that? Nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. Someone said to me, oh, I just couldn't do that. It's like, that's because you haven't been sick enough. End of conversation. Not interested in talking about it. You haven't been sick enough. Or you haven't got it in your head mm. that dying isn't the problem and living with a lifestyle disease like cancer or you know, and I say lifestyle because our lifestyle does impact on on it. And, and you just need to look at epigenetics for that. I mean, epigenetics is fascinating. Yes, people say, oh, but it's in my genes or whatever. Epigenetics is just like, oh, it's very exciting. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's yeah, a whole other conversation. Let's talk about that another day, shall we? So, yeah, so for me, it's having the conversation about death and reminding ourselves that, as I said, the day I die is not a problem. I just want to be, the, my quality of life is my utmost importance until that day. Mm, yes. So using death as a tool for living, essentially. Leverage. It's just leverage. That's all it is. Leverage. It's just leverage. Leverage. So, yes, you're now eight years, radical remission. Yes. What's the most radical part of your journey? So... 14 months after I was diagnosed, my husband said to me, you're seriously a pain in the ass again. I think you're fine. And I said, yes, so do I. I I think I'm fine. So the most radical part of my my journey was then saying, we should have children before I'm 40 because I'm not having children after I'm 40. In which he replied, sweetheart, we live in Christchurch. We've been through four and a half thousand earthquakes so far. Two of our businesses have been relocated. One of them is going to be relocated again. Your job is 11 open insurance claims. They're worth quite a lot of money, you know, to to sort this out. We're not even in our house because it's earthquake damaged and we can't get down our street. We're living at your sister's and there ain't no action happening here, honey. In which I said, I've booked a weekend away at Akaroa. Don't worry about it. We can take care of business then. And let's just say that dark chocolate port were not part of the original 14 months of healing. But anyway, we went to Akaroa, and it was <laughs> consisted of dark chocolate port and taking care of business. And my husband is the complete opposite to me, um, very, very calm, logical. And let's just say that weekend I discovered he performs very well under pressure. And <laughs> three weeks before my 40th birthday, to celebrate life, we decided to have a child. <laughs> and wow. That's pretty <laughs> part of, of the whole thing because, you know, I, I celebrated my life by – a 20-year project it's like holy shit what was I thinking (laughs) and don't get me wrong (laughs) I love my son and I love my life but that was a huge adjustment for me I was four you know just on 40 when I had Jackson massive adjustment having children later in life and I don't regret it and you know I just love him to pieces and he literally is the joy of my life 
Um, but that is the most radical part of my journey was going, hey, let's not get me checked. Because like, in all honesty, my husband said that to me and I was out of the medical system. So I never even went and got a test. It was only when Jackson was about three that I went and got a CT scan to see how my lungs were doing. So I think the radical part of that is wow. the fact that without knowing whether I was okay or not, my husband agreed to have a child with me and we did that. Like looking back on that now, I'm like, even I'm impressed with myself. Do you know? <laughs> I know that sounds weird, but you know, when I look mm. back on all my journey, I'm like, whoa, that was a bit that I go, that was a big decision. It, it didn't feel it at the time, but that was a big decision on our part. What do you think you would say to yourself if where you are now from the from the choices you've made if you if you would go back to yourself that day receiving that news from that funny little man what do you think you would say to yourself now if you could come and sit with you I your future self I would say the same thing that my 96 year old comes and tells me every second day my 96-year-old comes and talks to me every second day with a cup of tea and sits down beside me and says, it'll be okay, Di. It'll be okay. And I know that it, and it will be okay whether I live to 96 or whether I don't. Because if I die, it's okay. And if I live, it's okay. And my highest value in life has been to grow. And so she just reminds me that it's okay. I can breathe today. Don't be in too much of a hurry. And it will be okay. Regardless of what happens, it will be okay. Mm. Oh, that's so comforting. <laughs> she's awesome. I love her even more than I love myself. <laughs> oh, I bet you. She's, she's like you 2.0. Of course she's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, I think, you know, I think about that and I, you know, because I, 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 must, I must admit, when I hear my story, sometimes I go, whoa, you know, when I hear myself talk about it. And I know for some people that are going through difficult times, it's like I know that they're in the woods and they can't see the woods for the trees because all they can see is the, you know, the issues that are in front of them and all of that. And the remarkable thing that I, I probably did was I just stepped away from the drama. And I acknowledged that even if I died, it was okay. Yeah, it, and it is okay. And and I just can't, I can't, I can't reiterate that enough. That the outcome is not the problem. It, it's the outcome is not the problem. Whether I whether and I, and I truly mean this. I lived like whether I died at day three hundred sixty five or whatever, whether I died or not wasn't irrelevant. And, and that, I mean, that, that's, that's the way we should live. We are going to die. But, you know, like I live today like I'm going to live till I'm 96 and like I'm going to die tomorrow. And it's that paradox that is so vitally important. We have to, well, we don't have to do anything. But for me, I don't know if I could breathe without living in that paradox. I eat today like I'm going to live till I'm 96 and I have joy in my day like I'm going to die tomorrow and it's my yes. last day on earth. And that's something that we can all do. Mm. Now, that paradox, well, that's exact, 
And that's what it comes down to choice in this moment. So before we talked about, you know, happiness and striving for happiness, it's like, but we live with that paradox. And, and that's where you find this joy and happiness for life, because that's where life is. Life is in expecting to live for a long time and knowing that you could die tomorrow. That, that's where happiness comes from for me. I haven't got time not to be happy at any opportunity. That doesn't mean I deny other feelings. It just means that at any opportunity, I, if I have a choice, I will choose happiness. And if I don't have that choice, I will probably reframe the situation until I find it. Because I can't think of anything that is just all bad. I can't think of anything that is just bad. I can't think of anything that's all good either. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, there's always a little bit of a shadow or whatever. So it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. We can hold two truths in our hands, two opposing truths in our hands at once, and both of them are true. What was the number one thing you did to allow yourself? Well, I could, I should probably rephrase that because maybe you chose to feel the fear. How did you, how did you support yourself through fear? I, I timed five minutes a day where I was allowed to immerse myself in worry on anything I couldn't control. Five minutes, put the timer on once a day. Wow. And the rest of the time, I would, if something came up that I didn't have control mm -hmm. over, I thought oh, I'd write it down and say, I'm sorry, you can come back at five o'clock because that's when you're allowed to surface. I, I give you a voice. See, Oh, this is really that. important. Fear, I, I, fear and death will come with me for my whole life. There's no point pretending they're not. We're not meant to live without fear. Fear is my greatest teacher. My fear was telling me that I was going to die. Guess what? It was right. My fear was my leverage <laughs> to say, what can I do to prevent that? Because I'd really, really, really like to live. So I did. I ate things. I consumed things. I did treatments that were not particularly comfortable, that helped me live. So I, I brought my fear with me. And when my fear says, you're going to die, I said, you're right. You're right, I am. Now, how do I live in today really, really well? And how do I get as many days as I can that are the best quality that I can? And that's when you tune into yourself and go, oh, maybe acupuncture would be a really good idea for me. So off I went. So I used fear as my mm. leverage, as my tool to ask questions for what it was that I did want. And I didn't get stuck in what I didn't want. Yes, I am going to die. Now, how the fuck am I going to live? Because that's the question. That is the question. How do I choose to live? And I wonder this. I wonder this all the time. I wonder if you are living your best big life. If you are leaning into your best big life, whatever that looks like for you, I wonder if you're listening to your own heart. I wonder if you're leaning in. I wonder if you're decluttering your life for the things that matter so you do get to do the things that you love, the things that give you sparkle, the things that bring you joy, the things that bring you love. And I wonder what story you're telling yourself. I wonder what you're telling yourself that this means. I wonder what you're doing with your thoughts when you have a random thought. I wonder if you're turning it into a full-length feature film with surround sound in 3D. 
I wonder if you're doing that for a negative thought that turns into a negative movie that you get to tune into easily. And I wonder if you can turn that round and make it mean something else. See it from another point of view. Ask another question. That's what I wonder. Thank you. You just made me cry so beautiful. Thank you so much. I wonder, what is the greatest gift that cancer gave you? Connection to my own heart. To listen. I'm not sure I'd I'd know how to live without it now. Yeah. And I think that gift is available to anyone at any time and especially when someone's going through a challenge it's we we carry that gift within us that we have the opportunity to listen to our heart yeah thank you so much thank you so much it's been such a privilege and such an honor to just just to have you sharing your heart and be of service to the listeners so thank you so much I'm so grateful for anyone that wants to connect with you further can you please share um, where we can find more of you sure Facebook under Di Foster uh, Instagram Di underscore Foster underscore and LinkedIn Di Foster and also my website is um, diefoster.com and you know here's here's my offer I love talking to people I love connecting with people on my website under coaching, there's a, a, a taster with dye. If anybody wants to have a chat, reach out. My phone number is there. My email addresses are there. Just reach out. Ask me questions. Set up an appointment for a free half-hour consultation if that's what you want, just to taste it, have a chat. I don't care if it's just a we just have a chat for half an hour and you just ask me some questions. It is absolutely what I'm here to do. Thanks, Di. And... Uh what I ask all the amazing people that I have on the podcast, what does living a life led by love mean to you? Simply gratitude. Gratitude for the, the life that I have, for the love that I've had been fortunate enough to feel and for the fact that my feet are on the ground today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for tuning into the Love Cleanse today. My heartfelt prayer is that these conversations bring you value and uplift your life to be led by love. If TLC resonated, please leave a review on iTunes and you can connect with me through thelovecleanse.com.au.